welcome to one of 200 the independent media and politics podcast you're joined by me kyle uh and today we've got a fantastic guest uh andre ivanov uh host of business games welcome to the podcast thank you very much for having me kyle yeah we've um we've had some chats uh just around a whole range of things um including some of the work that you're doing in the i guess you'd call it um economics or business or decision making content space yeah decision theory could could fall into that um yeah or could it's it's wide encompassing enough yes <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna talk about some of that today and we're gonna go into some specifics about our, our current context here in new zealand um talking about some of the government level decision making uh maybe some logistical stuff uh and particularly in regards to the health system and, and the pandemic, which we are in the midst of. But before we get into that, Andre, did you just want to give our guests a, a bit of a rundown on where you come from, um, what, you, what you've done and, and what your experiences are? Sure. Okay. Um, always struggle where, because I've done so many things and I was just struggling to, to control it, uh, control the narrative a little bit, but okay. What, uh, first of all, ethnic background, uh, generally European uh, <laughs> and, and like all over the place really. So we've got a combination of, uh, uh, Russian, German, Ukrainian, Polish, uh, Roma. So gypsy, uh, highly likely Ashkenazi Jew, uh, French ancestry, right? And I was born in Soviet Union. I grew up in West Auckland, so it's it's kind of you know <laughs> keep, keeping in in line with the the great migration of whatever the 20th century. Right? You'd be surprised at how many of us in this space are from out west, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Westies. There's something about there's something about West, right? So. And I've spent all my 20s in Germany. So my accent's all over the place. Um, I, I met my wife in Germany. We had our, our uh, eldest daughter was born in Germany. And then we needed grandparent support. So we came back. And I actually settled like not far away from where I grew up, which is a sort of a corner of New Lynn and Titirangi, um, which, which for Aucklanders might make some sense. But uh, I, I don't know whether it makes sense anywhere else. It's kind of slightly developed suburbia, right? Slightly developed suburbia, yeah. And we moved out into the uh, the the kind of artsy alternative. Uh, you know, like if you go beyond Titirangi, that's as you get into like really <laughs> really out there west. But uh, yeah, that's oh, a cool place. It's a cool place. I love it. And while you're in Berlin, um, you were undertaking study there, correct? I was studying in Mannheim. We ended up living in Berlin. Berlin is uh, one of my most favorite cities in the world. It was always a dream to live there. I actually moved there for work. And that was the final thing before we moved um, uh, back home. But uh, we spent most of the time in um, Mannheim, uh, which is halfway between Frankfurt and Stuttgart. And uh, yeah, Mannheim, I mean, this is where Carl Benz uh, invented the, uh, the car. So, you know, there we go. And we actually lived in a house which was not far from, from that place. Um, so that's Mannheim for you. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a cool city. Um, Mozart also spent some time there. And what were you, um, what were you studying? Studied economics. Uh, there is something that oftentimes when I say, okay, I'm an economist, people start asking, I was like, okay, what do you think the government will do about it? Honestly, don't know. I'm not that kind of economist. <laughs> economics is a wide, really wide 
ranging discipline and i have nothing to do with macroeconomics so don't ask me about uh, interest rates or uh, you know or exchange rates or whatever so i'm a, I'm a microeconomist and this is what what tr- kind of what interested me most was the human decision making and the interactive decision making of humans in uh, uh, like small settings, like several people in the team, right? So where your interactions could lead, could affect the other person's interactions. It's, it's very difficult to do that, you know, in, a, in an economy, like whatever you and I are doing, right? It's not going to have any impact on, I don't know, housing prices, right? But if we, uh, if we are in a team, uh, or if we are in a, uh, you know, if we are honestly pick any market, a large enough, like whatever entity is there, it is especially in New Zealand because we don't have much competition in here, <laughs> right? So whatever entity is going to be doing, it highly likely has huge impact on other entities. Uh, like think about a large, I don't know, let's say a, uh, a foodstuffs, right? Whatever foodstuffs is doing is uh, is going to have a lot of impact on uh, you know the other large competitor in the market because um, there's really only two the these are the types of decisions that always interested me um, so why because it's something that so first of all when when I was when I was going through the grad school um, the behavioral economics only started coming to the fore we were still taught in a more traditional way, I guess, and more sort of rational uh, homo economicus, you know, everybody thinks about everything and analyzes everything. And then of course we found out that, uh, uh, well, that's not true. Most, <laughs> most of us, yeah. Yeah. Know, surprise. yeah no, and if you think about it, it's like, yeah, actually most, most of the time we just have rules of thumb and um, uh, ironically, even if we think that we're so rational, and we are doing something quite often, we're just exposed rationalizing stuff. So we're making decisions for whatever reasons, you know, we like the color red, whatever, right? And then it's like, oh yeah, I did this analysis and I found that this car has the lowest mileage, whatever. It doesn't, it's, that's not how the world works. So you've got this psychology-based, um, you know, issues with, with the way that our brain got, uh, got developed. And then on top of that, you have this, interactions and that that's what that's what attracts me so i i want to know this is a bit nerdy but i i just want to know how world works so i am trying to understand you know a little bit like what's what's in the background like why why are humans making whatever decisions they are like what is the decision making apparatus itself um yeah so that's uh anyway that's game theory for you in a nutshell game theory is about uh interaction uh and uh, that's the kind of economist I am, I guess. That's, that's about that. And then you've worked in that industry now um, for like more than a decade? Just- uh, What's well, over there, you know, it's nearly 15 years that I've, I graduated in 2008. So I went into strategy consulting. Um, uh, the reason why I went into strategy consulting is we had a lot of McKinsey guys doing their PhDs with our professor and I co-authored a number of stuff with them. And whatever you think about McKinsey, right? And they had, like it got to the point with the opioid, uh, you know, uh, stuff in the US where like some really prominent ex-McKinsey guys were writing on LinkedIn saying that they're embarrassed to have ever been associated with the company. So the company has its issues uh, for sure. 
But in terms of the, um, you know, it's a large firm, so it has lots of different people. Uh, there are good people, there are bad people, like bad apples, and the, there are certain things, you know, that happen. So I'm not going to excuse McKinsey. I'm not also going to, you know, uh, unduly trash McKinsey because McKinsey is, is just a cog in the system anyway. What I will say is that McKinsey does attract really um, intellectually very smart people. Uh, sometimes if it's not balanced by anything else, that's that's a danger. But uh, if it's balanced by something else, that, then, then you have like you have really good interactions. So I, uh, some of my best friends are um, ex-McKinsey consultants. And working with them at uh, doing my PhD and analyzing stuff, I kind of got to the point where I felt that the world has enough academic economists, if that makes sense. But there is this application of the economic theory and thinking to the real world and uh uh and that that's how i met uh, my wife i we, we did it <laughs> it's a really good story okay so what kind of real world applications so we ended up doing a project on the pricing in the chocolate market so we had to taste it was you know we forced uh, uh, they forced us to taste a lot of chocolate and uh, <laughs> This horrible time, the um, and and uh, and then we started dating. But we also wrote this paper about the pricing in the chocolate market, and we actually analyzed one brand that uh, we thought was really really good, but it was underpriced. And interestingly enough, within the several months of our you know of us writing our project uh, work, they increased the prices. Now. I don't know whether that's because we had the Mac McKinsey director uh, or one of the teachers who maybe or maybe not gave them a call. I do not know. But um, yeah, we didn't get anything out of it, right? I mean, we got an A, <laughs> we got an a plus, which was nice. But um, yeah, the so anyway, that's, that's the story. Um, so if you think about the applications of lots, of, so for business, which is where a lot of uh, my experiences is is in uh, it. It has to do with you know analyzing markets, launching new products, looking at customer reactions, setting prices, that sort of stuff, and looking how the the other um, companies would interact. I don't know whether I, it, that might be interesting to your audience, but I think what is what is really interesting is recently I've been thinking more and more about various levels of organizations of systems if you will and if you think about you know humans interact it's like my example of um of a interacting on a project uh, but then humans make up organizations and those organizations could be anything you know they could be businesses they could be not-for-profits they could be government organizations they could be councils they could be a government itself um, uh, you know, various agencies, whatever. And uh, those organizations are also then take another level of abstraction is that they fit into, they interact with each other in some shape or form. And they fit into this wider, um, wider system. You know, for us, it's uh, NZ Inc. Yeah. So it's the, the whole society, the whole of society. And so at, at various levels, what is really interesting is how individual decision-making is impacting, is impacted by and impacting the system. And that, that latter impact is very, very limited because, you know, it's very 
as, as we discussed, very difficult for us to do something and then impact the whole of economy. Uh, but the regulations that uh, that the government is setting is definitely impacting, you know, the business that that are making decisions. And anyway, so this this is something that sort of um, had been trying to understand that had been a driving force behind the latest iteration of what I'm doing, which is setting up the business games. Because on the one hand, it's a um, it's a program teaching people how to make better decisions. But on the other hand, it's also uh, a way for me to learn and investigate those ideas more because we're getting really cool experts to come and talk about stuff like predicting a pandemic or you know how to run a culture of experimentation or something like that. Yeah, and I think one of the really interesting things about this is if you're looking at it from a decision-making perspective um, and, you know, making the best decision given uh, X, Y, Z piece of information and a broader uncertainty, um, if you're working within that framework, smaller or, well, what is it that, um, I listened to the one with Melissa Clark-Reynolds and yeah. she calls them like weak signals. Um, so being able to pick up on small things that are happening in the wider, yeah. um, the wider world on, on a, like somewhere on the globe and being able to say, okay, if that's happening here, this could mean that this decision is a, is a good one uh, as opposed to not acting at all. Uh, and she went into like quite a bit of detail around, you know, she, she follows like um, zoonoses, so animal um, diseases, right? Yeah. Um, and how once stuff started happening very early on, she was able to go back to her clients and say, okay, keep an eye on this. Like you, you want to be ready for um, several different types of scenario. Yeah. So the cool thing about that particular episode is, uh, so the reason why I wanted to have Melissa on is that she was one of the uh, first people to in New Zealand who had predicted and kind of figured out, oh, there's something happening and it's going to, um, so about COVID in general. And we recorded the, our episode in um, uh, like June, I think, 2021. So June last year. Um, and at the time she was talking about a couple of signals that she was monitoring and she was saying, I expect something to happen towards the end of the year. And then when we published the episode, it was like one day later, the Omicron news broke. Actually, one day later, the, you know, the variant B12, whatever, 59 news broke. And then one day later, it got the name Omicron. So, uh, and it was quite eerie that, you know, we, we were talking about something in the middle of the early middle of the year. Uh, and she was expecting something to hit and something hit, you know, whether it was exactly what she was expecting or not, that's, that's kind of beyond the point because that far in advance in a fast moving scenario, it's very difficult to predict exactly what's going to happen, but it's also possible to, to understand how these things like the direction of what is likely to happen, what type of stuff. So let's make it concrete for your audience and just say, okay, so weak signals, what are these? So if you think about, uh, data, a lot of data um, that you can analyze and build statistical models. Now, in a stable environment, 
you would be like the environment of a, um, I don't know, let's make it a, uh, a manufacturing process, right? You would be able to minimize errors in a manufacturing process because everything is precise. Like you can monitor stuff, you can, you know, you still have some deviations, but they're very, very small. So a lot of data helps you in that type of environment. In an environment where uh, new stuff is happening, past data is not necessarily gonna, in that, from that point of view, you wouldn't be able to build a statistical model and predict COVID, right? Because it's something that happens more often than people expect. I mean, we have a pandemic like every three to five years. It's just, it doesn't get to the level of COVID, you know, like it sometimes gets to the level of COVID and most, you know, more often it does not. So from that point of view, if you want to predict some, an event like that, which is a rare, it's not an inexistent event. It's, it's, it's not a black swan in a way. Uh, that's the other thing. Like people go like, oh, it's a black swan event. No, it's not a black swan event. Uh, it's, it's an event that actually is, is more frequent and we know what to look for, but we cannot necessarily build like big data-driven statistical models. but So therefore, what we need to look at, we need to look at various weak signals. And the and I would encourage people to go and uh, actually subscribe and listen to that episode. It's really good. Uh, thank you. Uh, the full, I have to warn people that the full episode is be, behind the paywall, um, and, but it's also very, very um, cheap. In, in the greater scheme of things, because it's a professional development. And there is thing. a teaser there if you want to just there is subscribe. A, yeah, there is a teaser um, uh, for free, uh, the, which which has about 75% of the episode, but the coolest part is is behind the paywall. Anyway, uh-huh. um, <laughs> the, what was it talking about? Right, so, so she talks about the particular uh, weak signals and examples of how these things develop. And if you know what to look for, it's actually, you can build a fairly good understanding, but you, you need to combine. So you, as one individual signal is never enough. So you need to combine different things. And then, um, well, that's as much as, as, as oh, maybe I want to talk about the, uh, you know, <laughs> predicting a pandemic. But what is really interesting, right, in all of this is people are still taken by surprise about the new variants. And it, it's, well, I don't know the Greek alphabet below, you know, be, be beyond Delta, I guess. So I don't actually know what, what level Omicron is, but, but it's not like the first variant that we had. And what is really fascinating is, is that we don't, we still don't seem to be prepared. Like Omicron seems to have, like Delta variant in New Zealand seems to have taken everybody by surprise. Um, and, and now Omicron is also, you know, seemingly everybody goes like, huh, didn't expect that. And this is a really interesting thing, right? Is it's not just, you know, members of the public. Our, some of our businesses um, and our government often seem like there's some level of surprise there as well. And they say, oh, we were preparing for, you know, these scenarios. But I mean, just head over to Australia for a second, right? Where, you know, last week Scott Morrison came out and said this, the extent of Omicron and, and just how rapidly it would spread um, and shut supply lines down uh, took us by surprise. And he apologized, which like, if, if you know anything about Scott Morrison's personality, this is not something that he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'd just seen it, just we'd seen that happen in the UK and the US um, like a month ago. Yeah. You know, yeah, the, the, I, I, very, those are strong signals. <laughs> yeah, those are strong. Exactly. So I, 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 you know, I, I, I didn't 
see the, you know, of course I wasn't monitoring it, but I didn't see it coming, you know, originally. So yes, it was a big shock in uh, like March, 2020, March and April, 2020, but you know, 18 months later, it, it, it's, it shouldn't be a shock to anybody, anybody who's saying, oh, you know, we, we were like, why just look around, especially in this part of the world. Right. I understand like on the, you know, where uh, new things get developed. But even then, right? I mean, look at what South Africa has done. South Africa has actually invested quite a lot in monitoring of the new um, of the new variants. And that's why they were able to warn everybody about Omicron. So- it was interesting, right? Because everyone's like, oh, it's coming out of South Africa. Like it's, it's a South African variant. And it's like, no, they just picked it up first. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like it probably and- came from the UK. <laughs> could could you know what given given how much uh, like effectively UK just created a petri dish of uh, you know of of just mutation experiments because I mean how do the viruses uh, come about and how do they like they mutate they run experiments right and they run experiments with, with with huge numbers and a lot of those mutations some of them are good for the virus some of them bad some of them don't do anything but then most of them don't most of them don't most of them don't right but sometimes because they run literally billions of uh, you know of variations Trillions. of mutations uh, like some of it sometimes just works out and. Uh, logically you you know that's that's a sort of a a uh i guess a counterpoint to to the let it rip crowd is that well if you let it rip like new mutation new variants would come in and you just so what you don't know is how bad or good would they be could they be uh, less lethal maybe could they be more lethal also maybe Right. And so, you know, do you want to make that bad? So what, what you do know is that if you re- reduce the ability for it to mutate, well, good things happen because then you can sort of control it. Um, Tim Harford from uh, he, he is a, he, he writes a lot for Financial Times. He also wrote a number of books and I highly recommend the Undercover Economist books uh, that he wrote. Uh, he wrote this article at the beginning of um, uh, of the pandemic. Uh, when was it? In April uh, 2020. And basically, he uh, he wrote about why was everybody, why nobody, you know, saw this coming. And one of the th- like there were a number of things, but basically there is like a um, uh, what's called a uh, positivity bias where people, you know, so first of all, people go, oh, it's not really happening. And there are experiments that that people ran, for example, um, a group of people were given, you know, put in a room and uh, given to fill out a questionnaire, and then smoke would be pumped into the room. And if there is one person on their own, uh, they would just stand up and, and walk away, right, get out of the room. But as you filled up the room with more people, you had this crowd effect where people were looking around and seeing that that others are not moving, so they wouldn't move. So they were overriding their own uh, kind, kind of you know safety mechanism. So there is a well-established you know a, a again in behavioral economics a well-established um, pattern that that people can actually you know get into this herd mentality and ignore ignore like bad signals which is literally what happened during during the the original wave of um uh of the pandemic and in the us and uk especially and then there is the positivity bias which is different which is where uh, some people go uh 
it's a terribly ageist thing to say, but I guess the, the, the young people are mostly afflicted by this. It's like, well, it's, it's not going to, like, I'll be fine, you know? Like, if, if it's going to, first of all, I won't catch it. And second of all, even if I catch it, I'll probably get a mild one, right? So, in, and everybody tends to believe that, that they will be the outlier. And again, so that, that's why people are resistant to, to wearing masks and, and lots of other stuff, because just think, you know, like I'm, I'm fit, whatever, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. Just, just as a kind of mini segue to that, it's interesting how that particular um, psychology has morphed in the last 12 months, I guess, into rather than being, oh, I'll, I'll be fine, or I won't catch it, it's, it's morphed into, if I catch them, die, say la vie. <laughs> I guess, well, that's the other part, which is, I think Tim uh, writes about it as well. And there's this sort of fatalism, like if you think, which is another reason why, you know, like relating it to climate change, for example, uh, quite often you just, you just feel defeatist, you know, you go like, well, no matter what I do is like, well, I can't really do anything. So, so that's, that also happens. That also sometimes, sometimes we just shut down and we go like, Ugh, like we can't, you know, uh, back to, being surprised you know so yes originally i could have been surprised and we discussed about some biases that are that are underlying about why you know we as a society um you know didn't really didn't really adjust very well now why the politicians in the uh, u.s and united kingdom and and the other you know western kind of developed nations why they didn't fucked it up royally that's uh are we swearing in this podcast yeah Okay, cool. So when, when appropriate. That that I think that's appropriate because <laughs> frankly speaking, I, I, I look around and go, where where is the you know where, where's the leadership? Like I don't see I don't see leaders around. Like what the hell are they all doing? So um so yeah, that's that's a bit less excusable because they are so what frustrates me is when people in the positions of, of having to make decisions are not actually making appropriate decisions. They're not following the appropriate process. Like, I don't know what they're... For. To be fair, I don't know what they know, right? Um, we know that, I think we know that they know more than we know, right? We, yeah, exactly. So and they have the information uh, more quickly and with a, a range of better data. Yes. So my, my point is, when they're not making a bleedingly obvious decision, I cannot be 100% sure that... It's stupidity, you know. I, it might be that it's really it's the best best thing, you know, not to have made that decision because for the things that I don't know but they know about. But I think we can confidently say <laughs> that likely, you know, when you look at the Boris Johnson and Trump administrations, uh, you know, collective response to that, I, I would say that's that's more stupidity or or just just I don't know what the fuck it is. Yeah, it's well. I think the other thing, if you know, we're talking about um, them knowing things that we don't. It's not always, you know, you don't, you don't feed in data and get a specific response, right? Mm -hmm. They could have had exactly the same information we had, and it doesn't have to be that we are missing data. It might just be that we interpret that data differently. For sure. Um, For sure. So, in in the case of the. Um, of the UK, for example, they felt like they wanted uh, with spoons open, you know, like the pubs open. And there, there's a massive lobbying campaign behind that. And they, for whatever reason, um, probably nepotism, 
it, it looks like, uh, on the surface of things, decided to keep all of these these hospitality spots open, mm-hmm. have really lax uh, restrictions, uh, went so far as to like have a a fund for people to go and like have have specials to to get mm-hmm. people out to like boost the um, hospitality scene again, and it just caused this insane uh, second wave. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. like so well, clear clear decision making uh, occurring. It's yeah, just, so the, the outcome so, they wanted was different than what we would have wanted. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and uh, and and again, looking, you know, so, so that's that's the thing because you had Milan, uh, you know, in Italy first, and you could see you could observe what was happening there. Then you could see New York, yeah, Fuck. and you could see what was happening. People think there. it's almost people like people have forgotten those initial days, yeah. which were like just obscene. Exactly, like you had mass graves, or just just you know, like bodies just being dumped all over the place because you 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 just couldn't uh, couldn't keep up with people dying and just you know uh, uh, burying them properly and stuff like that. So I I mean, if you look at that very, and and then you go like to me, it's very clear. I don't want that. Like that's yeah. something that's probably the last thing that I would like of all the choices. Like I I don't want to make any choices which which would have a possibility to lead to that. That's that's a bad outcome. So let's let's do something. And then it's like, let's not even debate necessarily about the cost-benefit analysis because it's like, you know, that's a bad outcome. Well, this let's is where it, like some of that stuff to come in though, right? Is I remember very early on it was, you know, it was hinted at and then later it was revealed to be, you know, fact that people in the ministries in the UK were talking about the cost savings of uh, initial COVID getting into care homes. So the, the, really? the the cost savings on pensions were going to be like 600 million pounds or something. That, that was something they were actually talking about in terms of policy settings. And so... Wait, is that really? That is, that is 100% true. And that doesn't lead to any like criminal I mean, well, this is this is, part of, this is the part of like why people are so frustrated at the moment with, <laughs> with Boris Johnson getting kind of called up on having some yeah. parties because there's clearly this other horrific range of shit that's occurred, right? Um, that the media hasn't hammered him over, but he had, you know, some parties in Downing Street. Who gives a fuck? But it's what they yeah. want to get him on. You know, they don't, they don't care about the fact that it was been an outrageous failure of, of public health response mm-hmm. um, and that they were making these ostensibly economic decisions that led to hundreds of thousands of mm-hmm. people uh, getting sick and dying. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. that, that, feels, that, that feels just way too, like, that's even for my cynicism that's a bit too much um <laughs> what, what what i would what i would say right so that's that's the thing that um some of these decisions are inevitable right the cost benefit decisions they have to take place mm-hmm. like for example and I, I think you might have even discussed it on the previous podcast uh, with um with pharmac uh you know you 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 have a particular budget and you can either buy I don't know. Yeah. You can either buy medicine for you know treating this type of cancer or that type of neurological disease, right? And and you can only buy one. You are making those decisions. Even that that's the funny thing. Like we walk on the street, and there is a uh, you know there there are people on the street who are trying to raise money for a uh, let's say cancer research, right? And you give them money, okay? But what decision have you made just now? 
well, you made that decision implicitly, like you're not thinking about it, right? Because people are just, just emotional. That's my original point. But effectively what you said is that that money that you just donated is more important on this particular type of, uh, of can- cancer research rather than something else, you know? Uh, well, the next, whoever's on the next corner, right? Yeah, whoever is on the next corner or something that hasn't happened or something that's happening, but it's not visible or, you know, children dying in Africa more, more frequently or, you know, whatever. So you are making that decision. People don't find that comfortable, but, but it's like we are making those decisions. And so the government has to, by, by, by necessity, but that's their job. They actually have to make a science out of that because they can't, it's like uh, I think we both agree that they could, you know, borrow more in general. You know, they they have it, it. The government budget is not the same as a household budget, so anybody who equates the two is basically a moron. And or just lying. <laughs> yeah, or just lying. But I think I think some politicians actually truly believe that, or or they, you know. But but that's not how government budgets work. But nonetheless, there's still a budget, so they can't be, you know, they can't be doubling and tripling and quadrupling that budget. Uh, at infinitum yeah so at some stage you still need to make those decisions so those cost benefit decisions kind of they are a thing <sighs> but at the same time uh, you know that's again yeah i don't know well, like, it was a really that, cl- clear example of that occurring right with the initial set of lockdowns in 2020 mm-hmm. uh, where the government said okay this is going to be there's going to be an economic hit from doing this like really mm-hmm. heavy lockdown but it is going to cost us less than if the health system collapses, which yes. is what will happen if, if, exactly. if it gets exactly. loose here. Exactly. And so that's, um, and so I guess the, I always push back on social media people who would say, oh, well, if we had, you know, like people die and whatever, and we just need to make a different decision because there are, there are other, there are other costs to lockdowns, right. That we may or may not know. Like there are, there are, uh, psychological costs and stuff like that, and and um, so yes, that's all. All of that is true, right? And it, but if you're dealing with uncertainty and you have this, like our health system literally could not cope. We we are not Germany. So there was another article um, that that was that was written at about the beginning of the uh, of the original pandemic again, April, um, and it's on Financial Times, and it basically says that oversupply of hospital beds helps Germany to fight virus. So they not only have an oversupply of hospital beds, they actually have an oversupply of hospitals. So they have a lot of slack in the system. And interestingly enough, the article was making a point, and and I kind of, uh, you know, I mean, I saw while living in Germany, we saw those discussions. There was a lot of of discussions, uh, like comparing Germany to to the UK and I'm saying, well, UK uh, health system is so much more efficient. There's much less slack and la-di-da-di-da. And like, we should start uh, decreasing, you know, like uh, we, we should have more occupancy per doctor and whatever, blah, blah, blah. Well, if they didn't have that slack, their initial wave would have been terrible. Yeah. And I think even, even now it's helping them. So because they have like I, I don't remember the numbers, but let's, let's hypothetically say they have, you know, tw- twice the number of like per, per person, they have twice the number of ICU beds or whatever. Uh, they're significantly bigger than, than in other countries. Because of that slack, it helped them. It helped them a lot. If we had that, we might have been able to, to care for people, but we just, you know, we uh, made a, I think that was, 
our government has made a fantastic, and, and I think that our original response had been one of the best in the world, if not the best in the world. I'm more than convinced that that was exactly the right thing. Where I am critical of the government is everything that they've done since then, <laughs> which seems like nothing. Well, this is the thing, right? Because there, there were some very strong signals coming out, you know, in, in the form of, um, you know, media reports of what's happening in other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was some data that the government had around uh, what our health system was going to be able to uh, survive, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and they made a decision on that basis. But some of those signals have stayed pretty strong. Um, mm-hmm. And we've known ahead of time, you know, we, we the government always talks about buying time, we're buying time. Mm-hmm. Um, we bought time so we could get everyone back. We bought which, ourselves a lot of time. Which is fantastic. You know, we got up to like over 90% yeah. before we got Delta. It made a, an amazing difference. But there are a range of other things that could also have been happening alongside that. Mm-hmm. Which just seem not to have, uh, like uh, you know, in in increasing ICU capacity, and it's not just like you know beds and equipment. It's also uh, nurses that are capable of you know we have a shortage of nurses, and as far as I'm you know can can see from the media, is that they're underpaid. So, uh, paid so, and so overworked. And they're overworked and underpaid. So, you know, have we increased uh, that? Have we, you know, uh, let's say imported nurses from somewhere? Have we? No, I, I don't know. So what, what, what's even the point of installing another bed with equipment if you don't have anybody well, to actually is, uh, monitor that, right? This is one of the arguments, right, um, that is often uh, brought up because people are like, oh, why have you increased ICU capacity? Yeah, okay, we, we can't, we have increased ICU capacity actually um, in terms of, we have more space, mm-hmm. um, but you also need nurses and we don't have that. There's a worldwide nurse shortage. Um, it takes time to train nurses. Okay, we're two years in now. Exactly. Um, so maybe, exactly. maybe we can't hire people from overseas. Maybe we shouldn't be taking you know, um, migrant health workers mm-hmm. uh, from their own countries who also need them um, or whatever argument you want to make in that space. Maybe it does take time. And, and very early on, um, when these ICU bed conversations were being made, I was... Um, I was happy to accept them, right? Like, in mm-hmm. fact, I, I would often say it as well. Like, look, it, it does take time. It's only you know, it's only been a couple of months. You know, we can't you can't just turn that over. Yeah, fair. Uh, okay, it's twenty twenty two now. Exactly. Um, and it, it's not just like okay, yes, I understand that a nurse or or a doctor, for example, takes a lot longer to train than two years. But have we seen, for example, a scholarship program? Mm-hmm. or some kind of other retraining or a shift in the way that we manage or administer those spaces so that people mm-hmm. who are already health workers could become ICU workers and then we, we backfill them from that scholarship. Yep. You know, there's a range of different things and a range of different frameworks you can use, um, but the continued argument seems to have been just like, oh, it takes too much time. But okay, cool, when are we starting? And the same arguments you made about MIQ as well, right? Oh, it takes a lot of time to build... Uh, yeah. Uh, MIQ facility. Okay, yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, I accept that. I accept there are supply problems. I accept that like <laughs> there's too much construction happening or whatever. But, it, it, but do you want to have this exactly? And do you want to have the same discussion two years from now? And I it's don't. Like, yeah, then then it, then it, then it will have been four years. And and if we had started earlier, we could have been you know built something in those four years. Yeah. And the, and that's that's the whole point about about all of this about the slack in the system idea that. It would have been great if you could, 
scale it up and scale it down as needed. But you can't. So what do you do? Do you try to play to the average or to the most common scenario, which is, okay, we are not in the middle of a pandemic, you know, like over the last hundred years. So we had after the Spanish flu and before this, okay, we hadn't had anything. Okay, that's great. But now we have it. Or, or do you want to do like Germany when, and you, you carry some slack in the system and then you're able to, to uh, react more appropriately? Because guess what? That's the other thing about pandemics. They're not going away. Like people were saying, oh, we, you know, SARS was a, um, uh, an, uh, you know, maybe a trial for, um, for COVID. Well, maybe COVID is a trial for something else that's coming yeah, well, up and, later uh, in the next couple of years that we don't know about. As climate change increases, precisely, precisely. Um, you know, we're, we're likely to see more of this. And that's been modeled for decades. Yeah, you know, yeah. That, that's something that's, that people have known, like exactly. in hard data for a long time. I don't so know where it's going to happen, but it yeah. is going to happen. So we're going to get tropical diseases that, you know, we've, we've, we've been too cold in this country, you know, in the past to have, but it's going to come. Um, you know, with the, um, so speaking of these new uh, zoonosis, so animal-based diseases, as we are encroaching more and more on the natural habitats of, you know, wild animals and stuff yep. jumps, stuff jumps to domestic animals and then jumps to- It's happening in the Amazon and you see it happening in China. Exactly. exactly. So uh, it, it stands to reason, it's, it's highly likely that we're going to have these things more frequent more of them and um, maybe a lot of them will be nothing but you know once in a while like it 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 only takes you know another delta variant to come along and just kill a whole bunch of people yeah i want to come back to that um household budget idea because it's 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 used incredibly cynically as a um as a metaphor uh because even in a household budget you try and put some money aside for like I, a disaster right and and but and yeah in a lot of ways when you know a, uh, economists um, or, you know, treasury or, or whoever is, or whatever right-wing think tank is making the argument about a, a household budget. Um, they're talking about running it like to the wire, like, and having no slack, but even like in terms of um, pandemic, pandemic um, panic buying, households understand that they want 300 toilet paper rolls, mm -hmm. right? Like, mm -hmm. like, oh, we just need, we need a whole bunch of that. Yep. They've got more like households are, regularly giving themselves more slack than our public service system is. Yeah, if they can afford it. Uh, the uh, Yeah, so I, and, and that's the whole point of investment. I, again, did you have a, or was it was it somebody else on different podcasts? Uh, I think Bernard Hickey was talking about, um, you know, like after the war, there's been a lot of investment in, in uh, public services and infrastructure. And then actually it went from overinvestment to underinvestment for the past 30 years, uh, where it's been, you know, dec decreasing. Um, so basically the, the, the narrative is that the baby boomers were just voting for tax decreases and just having more, more money. And, you know, they had a great but we have basically three decades or since the 80s maybe like four decades yeah. now of underinvestment in in um, in infrastructure and the thing about the investment in infrastructure is that yeah you you cannot have you wouldn't within an election cycle you wouldn't see the benefits of it so it's it's you know for for anybody 
thinking over a short or too much of a short term, uh, it's, it's a cost. But then, of course, for the future generations, that's an investment. The fact that we in New Zealand, like at, a, at an individual level, we equate uh, buying houses with investments, like, no, that's not investment. That's, that's just a roof over your head, right? Investment is something productive that, that has actually disproportionate, uh, you know, like you build a road. A road is an investment. Now, a lot of people can use it and, uh, you know, they can trade and they can get to the, to the other side of the road faster. If they're chicken, I don't know, whatever. The uh, terrible joke. Uh, yeah, chickens can cross the road. So that's that's also good. So it's got infrastructure is great. Uh, proper investment would be in something that that has that that has more benefits and has slacks. Again, covering your country in roads such that people can drive here and there. That there there is you know obviously you're building that into the future. So whenever you build it, if you just build the roads for what is now, that's a really stupid road building because tomorrow there will be more people wanting to use those roads. So by necessity, you actually need to invest into something that has slack and you always need that slack. Uh, otherwise you are, it, it, it's never enough. You, there's never enough time. The stuff takes, takes you know, like, like our ICU beds and training of the nurses. The other thing is just on, on, that, on that point, uh, then over the last couple of months, there's been, or maybe two, two months ago, there's been a couple of articles written about um, Fungare Hospital. Yeah, That's, that is, it's basically, it's leaking, it's like sewage running, you know, running in the- uh, Christchurch Hospital last year was talking about that. Right, And okay. like Hawkeye so, Hospital the year before, you know. Yeah, so that's not even, this is a systemic issue. It's not even, it's like a leaking roof and, and, and the sewage running down the ward is not, a COVID issue. It, it's just a long-term underinvestment or, or in the in the infrastructure. It's like why are we why are we talking about it? Like why are we even letting it to get to that point? This is what I don't understand. Yeah. So what you know we talked about kind of some of the things which are happening um, that you know better decisions. It seems like they probably could have been made. How do we shift that thinking? How do we get into a situation where uh, leadership, I mean, it could either be at a, a ministry level or a cabinet level um, or at enough levels of business that, um, you know, the community is doing it. How do we get there? Yeah, that's really good. That's a million dollar question. I mean, it's probably a billion dollar question. <laughs> that's a really good point. So there are a couple of things that we can do individually, but some of them are systemic, Okay. And individually, uh, and some of them are related. Let's let's do another let's let's do another thing of what kind of went wrong and what what was bizarre, or at least seems bizarre to me. You know, it is um, propping up of things that are clearly not going to work under pandemic, and you know, misestimating when things will come online. It's just you know, like getting surprised by stuff. Like uh, um, uh, like international tourism, right? Yeah. There's so many so many businesses that that have been propped up. When in reality, maybe they should, maybe people who were employed in those businesses should have been retrained to do something else. Maybe 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 the the better subsidy would not have been just giving out money and saying, are you going to continue, you know, trying to operate like that? If you think you're still a going concern, then here is money. 
maybe the better would have been like, well, international tourism is not likely coming back anytime soon. You know, like yeah, and we could have told that pretty early pick, on. Pick a number exactly, like you know, uh, at least twelve months, but but may, maybe longer. So you know that that that's not a viable business model. So let's do something, you know, so, so then, yes, there would have been losses. People could have been, uh, you know, remunerated for those or somehow supported through those losses. But more importantly, businesses that were employing people, the worst thing is to give people a false sense of hope, like, oh, yes, if we only do this, you know, like, oh, we just need to wait a couple of months. Then yeah, it's, yeah. This is like, it's like, we'll give you support payments to tide you over. Exactly. To, yeah. In this particular case, tied you over to what? There, there's it to anybody I think who was looking at this rationally. Like there is no light at the end of the tunnel, or or it's so far away that. Well, I think this is what fooled a lot of people initially, and and you saw you know people on the left, um, a range of commentators and the like saying, oh yeah, they're gonna go full communist or whatever, um, and you know it was, it was a meme. It was like somewhat a joke, but. Labour and Grant Robertson in particular were pushing very hard this idea of build back better. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've seen that in, in different uh, configurations globally as well. Yeah. So that wasn't necessarily just like, oh, you get these support payments while you need them. It's like, you'll get those and then we're going to do something else. But have but, we done something else? Well, this is the thing. It's slowly morphed into this like um, learning to live with it or like returning to normal are the two okay. things we've heard yeah exactly and it's like what's normal i mean nobody's and that's the thing nobody's coming going back to 2019 or at least not anytime soon and and i like perversely i think that we had the 18 months of 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 zero covid and we did go back to you know 2019 when the rest of the world had not for 18 months i think that gives us gave us a uh, false sense of security and as people going like, oh, okay, cool, like job done. Well, well done, Team New Zealand. Best you know, in the world. Yeah, we we kicked COVID. That's it. It's, it'll never come back. Let's go and dunk some people on social media. <laughs> yes, and uh, you know, fun as that was, fun as that was. <laughs> I think, I think, so. So this is this is the the problem, not only in the government but also in business that I've seen is when when Delta came, like people are going, oh no, not again. Like we're not prepared for this. It's like oh. This is, whatever it's like why you had been given like we bought ourselves time 18 months we bought ourselves 18 months of whatever the normal looks like what have we done have we just gone out partying and and uh patting ourselves on the I mean, shoulder saying job yes. well done like yeah, exactly but this is like i i don't know this is so that's so frustrating so so that's a problem that that's a problem then people were going and th- this is where i come from you know trying to go uh, you know, when people say, oh, I was just surprised by Delta. It's like, really? Why? Based like, you've seen t- two years of like, just read the news. You know, internet is effectively free. Just go online, look at what's happening elsewhere. Like, y- you cannot be that much of an ostrich with your hand in the and, and, you know, I have some uh, sympathy um, or empathy for the public, maybe, who are just, I just thought, like, it's really stressful for me, but not so much for people who are in leadership positions. Exactly, because it's their job. Ultimately, it's their job to be looking out for these things. And so people in leadership position, both in the government as well as, as in the companies. So what, what can we do? Why, why that is happening? So, so a couple of these things um, are, I don't know. Do you want to talk about the systemic or the individual things? Because one is more positive and one is more depressing. Do you, do you want Let's to start with put... depressing and then, then let's do the okay. positive. 
So I think I think part of the depressing stuff um, in um, in New Zealand, especially, is we have this uh, three-year uh, election cycle, and where the last uh, the last year is basically spent electioneering, and anything that's spent bef- before that, I mean, if if it's a new government. The first year is just, or even if it's the same party but stays in government, like the first year is is the reshuffle of portfolios and la di da di da, and just getting new new people to you know new ministers to get used to new portfolios and new teams and blah blah. blah. So that that takes like you know that takes months. Like you cannot shortcut it or short short yeah shortcut it. It takes months. So six months to a year is gone on that. Then you have maybe a year of doing stuff and then it's election year. Okay, so that's a systemic issue. The part of it, which is, which honestly, I don't know what it is. Like I'd love for any party to come and and like my services are open. I would be happy to, uh, happy to. Hey, if anyone's listening. Yeah, uh, if anyone like we'll, I'm, we'll I'm, get your details at the end of this for for anyone who wants to. I've been up. so critical of the opposition on uh, on. Um, uh, on social media uh, that uh, I see now that they're picking up my uh, my ideas. Now, I don't know whether the ideas are so obvious that anybody should have picked them up, <laughs> but it took them a year uh, or maybe they did monitor and just because these are not, like, again, uh, the opposition was a joke. So this is the other part of the system. It's not really a systemic issue. But, um, we, we have dearth of quality politicians, I guess, because the opposition was a joke. So I think the, the worst thing that could have happened to New Zealand is that the Labour um, got to govern alone. I mean, they had the mandate to do anything. They just didn't do anything with that mandate because I guess they also had a lot of um, defectors from uh, from National who wanted the more centrist uh, kind of let's not do anything. Well, that's, uh, that's a myth at any rate. But I... Maybe, well, maybe. At, I don't know. But at, at least they, least they have bought into that. That is, the... Yeah, at least that, that's something that I can understand because that's something that makes sense for the lack of any anything, really. Let, let, let's say what they could have done and what they actually did, there is a big gap between those. There's a visible gap. And that, to me, is not explicable by anything other than they just want the centrist position. You know, they just move to the center. So and and then of course the uh, the greens you know can't really talk too much against labor and the national network just frankly speaking a shit show i mean it's just so embarrassing and they were they were complaining about they were just taking whatever labor was saying they were just saying the opposite when in fact you had a lot of things and we enumerated them and that's something that they are starting to do now like you had the you know healthcare investment you had uh, you had you had the 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 water uh, you know the the quality of water and all that stuff around the three waters like that's there's a problem there that needs solving i don't think we approach solving it uh, there there is child poverty there are a lot of things where we seemingly made no movement whatsoever but was the uh, opposition saying any of that no they were just they were just like derailed by petty squabbles and anyway, so so there is there is a problem when you don't have a lot of you know a lot of good people doing stuff, then you just have a, just a bunch of people whatever running around, and so and maybe that's leadership, you know, because I think uh, you know obviously National went through a series of leadership crises. There's no other way to describe that. Okay, so that's a systemic issue. 
How do you solve that? How do you solve the systemic issue? I don't know. I think we need longer, uh, longer um, uh, election cycle. I think that would that would help. Um, basically, you know, for the for the government to be in in government for longer. I don't know what else. It seems like Germanic nations, and I'm talking about Switzerland, Germany, Austria. Um, they are more like governance oriented. You you had you you have the one thing that i noticed and i don't know how bad it is or how good it is is that we seem to have a a cult of personality um john key was like that um jacinda is like that i'm not gonna say anything bad about jacinda like people will come after me and actually i like her but i do (laughs) i do think that the cult of personality is dangerous like compared to you know Angela Merkel, who 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 was for a long time a chancellor of Germany, who I don't think that she she just kind of you always had this perception that they just got on with stuff, yeah. And there wasn't really that that cult of personality. Like nobody cared about Angela, uh, be, you know, whatever being or not being married or having a wedding or not having a wedding and so on and so forth. And I just think that that cult of personality is unhealthy. As as soon as that that infatuation with people prohibits you from seeing things clearly, which prohibits you from making good decisions. And uh, I don't know whether that's a systemic issue or not, but but we're having that. So that's the depressing part, and I don't know how to solve it. But I guess you know a couple of things, and we're not going to solve it either, right? So what, <laughs> what can I I, I, I'm hoping that this podcast will solve it. I, yeah, but it'll take ages. I mean, uh, no, I, mean I think this specific episode. Oh, this specific episode. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, if it does, like, I think you know, we're we're both open to uh, yeah, just, yeah. just consulting opportunities. Yeah, get in. So, what could Kyle and Andre solve? Actually, solve. Okay, and this is where um, that individual stuff. Now, individual stuff is really important because that's something we have control over. So we can learn ourselves to make better decisions. We might not be able to, to, to solve the New Zealand government issue, but we can actually in our, in our worlds make better decisions. And that can so, be like, you know, any, any, leadership, any person in leadership can, any, can use this. Exactly. So anybody in leadership can do, uh, actually, if Grant Robertson were to listen to this, it might be he, good too. He might. Uh, so one thing is you need to understand that the vast majority of the world happens with between certainty, right? So you have, I don't know. So zero knowledge about anything, zero certainty. It's like everything is all over the place, right? And, and I know. So I don't know and I know. Those two binaries actually don't help you. Most of the time world lives somewhere in between. And A, we need to get more comfortable within that space. So it might happen might not and then you start thinking about if this you know happens then what could could it lead to if that other thing happens what could that lead to so you start thinking about different things about different possible futures actually this is the first time that i ever speak of this but i think i, I want to explore that uh, that that further the fact that uh, mcu is developing and, and now we're talking about multiverse yeah i think that's actually brilliant for decision makers because you need to learn to think about the different worlds that could exist or that could happen. 
And then are we living in this world or are we living in that world? And what needs to happen for us to be going from this world to the next world? Well, this is something Melissa Clark uh, Reynolds mentioned as well, right? About um, a signal that I think she said um, she had not picked up on quickly enough. Uh, and exactly, exactly. it completely changed the, the way the US responded. Yes. Um, and you can listen to the episode if you want to hear out what that decision was. Exactly. So uh, if you start getting used to, uh, to this idea that there is uncertainty and you cannot reduce it, and there are two types of uncertainty. I'm not going to get into that because I talk about it elsewhere, but there, there are two types of uncertainty. One you can reduce and the other you can't. And there's just an inherent randomness to things. And no matter how much information you have, you just, you just have to live with some. So I think that's useful. What does it mean in practice? In practice, it means um, that, so not having this mindset, what does it mean, right? If people believe in, I need more information before I can make a decision, so you can get paralyzed. If you think in binaries, if you think in terms of I know or I don't know, and I'm uncomfortable making a decision with incomplete information, I need to know more, then sometimes you get paralyzed and you're not making a timely decision. Sometimes timely decision is better than, than having more information. And you see this happening in government all the time. Yes. They'll, they'll have like but, consultation for five years, you know. Exactly. And then the world has, has moved on and whatever you've been consulting on is all data anyway. So by the time that you actually incorporate and analyze all of that, the world has changed to the point where none of that is relevant anymore. You see that in, um, in the corporate world as well, where uh, decision makers are, um, you know, it's because there, there, there is a, whatever could be good from the learning point of view for an organization could be bad for somebody to lose their job, right? In, in a way, if, if somebody makes a bet and that bet goes... So first of all, if you, make a, if you, if you uh, set up a hypothesis and you just say, okay, um, you, know, you make a bet, you make a small bet and you learn something, that learning is tremendously positive. That's a positive thing. If you were able to disprove your hypothesis, that's, that's a positive thing. You should be rejoicing. But a lot of people are not rejoicing because they're putting basically all of their proverbial eggs yeah. in one basket and they my go KPIs like, My oh, KPIs are fucked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, like, I don't get my bonus. Exactly. And so what happens then is that you are uh, too risk averse because in, and then you are, you're, you know, you're dawdling. You're not making a decision. You're not making a decision in time. Again, you want to know more. But as we just discussed, that's actually a fallacy because you can never learn enough. You will always not know something. So... That's what we can. What we can do is we can individually uh, start learning. First of all, start getting comfortable with the idea of, you know, the world is slightly ambiguous, and that's okay. And then we need to, rather than, okay, let's talk about where it comes from and and why the world is not like that. So it used to come from being, you know, in a savanna, and then if the if the grass rustled, you know, it could have been a predator and that could kill you, right? So from that point of view, you cannot go like I'm okay with ambiguity. I mean, people <laughs> people who did that and they existed, they were eaten, yeah. So they didn't survive to to give their genes further. So that's that's not a good. So what we that that's why we we have this ingrained. Um, desire to for certainty and in particular for, for risk aversions like we we say oh my god this is and then we get paralyzed right so one thing once you switch that um, we're living in a different world so once you switch that mentality you go I would be comfortable with ambiguity and the reason I'm going to be comfortable with ambiguity is that we're not dealing with these de life and death 
grass rustling could be well, a lion situation. Immediate life and death situations. Immediate life and death, right. So there is a little bit of, we can experiment. We can see what, what's going on in our lives. Like we can, uh, you know, we, we can even like, you know, take a job, don't like it, get another job, right? I mean, there's not like even some meaningful, large um, study this. You figure out that you don't like that particular study. You know, if you if you're young and and everybody going to the university or you know going like, do I go to the university? Do I not go to the university? Can I even go to the university? That's a different thing. I don't want to discuss that. But if you're going to like those types of things, it's okay. Like at the end of the you know at the end of the term, you can switch just to another uh, to another course. Okay, so we can experiment, and experimentation is really good. Uh, for discovering the world. But the experimentation needs to be um, structured. So you need to have a hypothesis, you need to write it down, and then you need to be able to, that hypothesis needs to be testable, and then you need to be able to learn from that. So if you approach life through that in a slightly more structured way, slightly, so first of all, I, I'm okay with not knowing, but I have this process that's gonna help me because if I follow the process, if I don't just willy-nilly do things, like if I wake up and I feel like it, I go and do this, like I get a new job, right? Just on a whim, not a good decision-making. But applying a structured process um, with writing things down, there's a magic that happens when you write things down. It's, it's, it's just, that's, that's a good, by the way, as a, as a tip that popped up in many of, um, like I'm running this whole season on business experimentation. And there are many people who independently say one of the, when I ask them, like, what would your advice be? They go like, write things down in different contexts. So writing things down is a good thing. Many people um, uh, advise it. And, and there is some science behind why that is a good thing. So if you have a structured process to this, like you can slowly improve to start making better decisions. But the other thing you need to keep in mind, and this is where the writing is really important, any decision that you make could lead to a good or bad outcome, regardless of the, uh, of the quality of the decision. That's why it's sometimes difficult to be having these arguments. It's difficult to have arguments about a decision that took place in the past um, with the information that you learn in the future. You need to incorporate that, but more importantly, the decisions need to be evaluated on what you knew in the past. Like, was it, a, because also right. like a good decision, you can, you can make a good decision, but there's just, you know, uh, I don't know. You're just a missing truck, a key data point, right? Missing or just random, just random stuff. Right. We had recently, uh, I think people can look it up. That there's been a truck that drove into a, um, uh, into a house in Titirangi, you know, just went off the road, drove like people needed to actually nobody died. It, I, I think Fantastic. But people, people needed to rescue uh, the truck driver. Like you couldn't get him out for, for some time. So just random shit can happen. You know, it's like, so you need to be, and, and you need to be able to analyze the, the, the luck from skill in a way. Um, you will never get everything well. Like even if people subscribe to my stuff and go through the learning program, they will not have 100% good decision track record, but you can improve your decision-making over time. 
you can become a little bit better. And so on average, your decisions will be better because you'll be making better decisions more of the time, which is what, which is really what we, it's, it's a, there are no hacks in this, right? Like there are no hacks in life. So uh, it, it's a lifelong continuous process of just learning a bit more and a bit more and just getting. One weird know, trick that doctors will hate, just practice a lot. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Coming up after this, top three things you need to know. <laughs> but yeah, so how, how do they, how do you work that kind of, well, how might you work that kind of, um, hypothesizing um, and safe experimentation um, in terms of decision-making into a, a leadership role. And so say like Grant Robertson or, or Jacinda Ardern is listening to this, what could the government actually do at this point to take the information which we think they should be using and make a decision that is better than some of the decisions that they're currently making? One thing that I would say that I do not see, and again, it might be just be, because I don't, um, you know, I don't work with government agencies. I would like to. I think this is somewhere where, um, like I ran a project on uh, climate change and uh, quite, quite, like even if you, if you are the largest company in New Zealand and you're doing something on climate change, you quite far fast figure out that you know that's a central government issue that needs yeah. to happen because you on your own cannot do much in in New Zealand. So there needs to be a coordination. There needs to be so. Actually, the topics that I'm in increasingly more interested in uh, lend themselves better to working with the government. So uh, if somebody calls me after this podcast and says, "Hey, we've got this thing," you know, that would be great. So I will caveat it with. I don't know what they're doing in order for me to tell them what to do better. But what I will say is that I don't see the government running experiments, running like controlled experiments. Like let's try something here and let's try something there and just, you know, pick whatever. Let's try something in, Napier and let's try something in Hastings, you know, in terms of a, like a policy intervention and all, all else being equal, you know, like you might be able to see the, like whether a policy intervention A, so A, B testing effectively, but in a government context, in terms of a policy context, there's a lot of discussion and partly because of the way that things are set up, you know, you're getting, you're getting, uh, any policy goes through numerous revisions by a number of different people and in and of itself, that's great until you run into the problems of, uh, you know, like coalition governments that are trying to satisfy many different, like, you know, I raved about Germany earlier. The current German coalition, the, the, the uh, traffic light coalition, has people from like the Greens and then the equivalent of national. It's a very strange coalition. And basically one of them, and maybe an, even an equivalent of ACT. And anyway, one of them said, uh, so the Greens came with a non-negotiable, we must do stuff about environment. Somebody else came in with a non-negotiable, I'm going from memory, I might, might screw it up, but I think that somebody else came in with a non-negotiable, we are not putting up taxes. And then somebody else came in with a, another non-negotiable. And it's like, they all like you cannot have all of those non-negotiables 
cold at the same time. You cannot do more stuff for the environment without increasing taxes and then with whatever the hell the third party. So like that, that whole political system is really good for not running, you know, not getting sidetracked into, uh, uh, you know, like too far somewhere. But it comes down to the individual decisions of those party leaders, yeah. right? Like, and of those yeah, parties but- to be like, we don't care about what's actually happening. We're, we're making decisions based on like our own personal ideology, as opposed to like, we're taking data from the world and making no, decisions exactly, based exactly. on that. And so, and even if, let's assume they all take data from the world, but they just interpret it differently and they have different, uh, you know, weights too, which again, like if you're making trade-offs, you have to do it by definition. So, but that's okay. But the point is that that system in and of itself is designed for us not to end up in a, in a, you know, where like a minority just, just rules a majority. Okay. So we are, we're prohibiting that from happening, which is great. But if you're having things like, um, it's very difficult to get a consensus about, you know, what should we do about the climate change? Because it's slow moving. You don't see the, you don't see uh, any, you don't see the effect of climate change immediately from today to tomorrow. And if you were to fix it, you're not going to see the effects for, for, you know, over a decade. And so whatever intervention you're doing, you're not going to see. And so you actually need sometimes maybe this, this consensus stuff is not going to work. Maybe you need to have like, you know, a plan and stick to it and whatever. Anyway, so that, that's, a, that's a different thing. But what I'm saying is um, we are, so yeah, we're, we're having that type of policy making rather than in some cases, maybe having a pragmatic A-B testing, you know, it's just, okay, let's, well, Honestly, like at some stage, if both sides agree, you know, in our case, like it's national labor, if both of them agree that child poverty is bad. Yeah, and they we need some interventions to fix it. You know what? Run some interventions in one part of New Zealand and run another intervention in another part of New Zealand and then compare what works. And just just go with what works, you know, be, be a little bit more pragmatic. So, And there's also I, a lot of information out there already, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So if, if I were a little bit, uh, you know, if I were giving an advice, I'm like, what I would say is that I don't see enough A-B testing in government. And I think we could do with more A-B testing in government in terms of policymaking. Fantastic. All right. I think that's us for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Andre. Thank you very much, Kyle. Uh, we'll... If one thing to your audience uh, is if they could go and uh, fill out a survey on www.business-games.ai forward slash survey, I would really appreciate it. And it might not be for everybody, but it's like, it's a survey about professional development. So where I'm asking some questions about yeah. you know what people want from professional I'll, development. I'll put a link to that in the cool. description as well. Um, and where can people find you if they want to um, follow you on social media or Twitter elsewhere? is Twitter is best. Um, it's uh, business games AI, uh, so it's at business games AI. That's the handle. Uh, I am also on LinkedIn. Both both my company, so business games has has a bit of a presence. I'd like to increase. Uh, I, I like people don't have to follow me. I'd, I'd like them to follow business games, but Twitter is the one that I use. Um, I actually like it more. I use both of them now, but I like Twitter more. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, so yeah, if you're interested in uh, what Andre has to say, or if you want to subscribe to his content, uh, follow one of the links, which I've got in the description uh, and follow him on Twitter, LinkedIn, um, or go and fill out that survey about uh, professional development. Thanks so much again uh, to everyone for listening. That's been another episode of One or Two Hundred Podcast. We'll catch you next time. Relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams. Is the lie aspirational? Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams. Is a lie aspirational? Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. No, you don't hate Mondays, you hate capitalism. Oh, you don't hate Mondays.